Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, joined in studio by my colleague Adele. Hi, Adele. Hello. And we have on the phone one of our Customer Experience Council members from Comcast, the Vice President of Customer Experience, Trace O'Reilly. Hi, Trace. Hi, Sam. Great to talk to you. Adele and I have known you for a while. You've been a, a longtime Forrester client, long time in the customer experience space. And so I was hoping you could start off by sharing with our listeners a little bit about where your customer experience journey started. How did you first get into customer experience? To be honest, um, it probably started when I was 14 years old um, in my first job working for McDonald's um, and the realization that um, in treating customers well generally provides a better experience for you as an employee um, and also a better experience for customers. And then from there, you know, spent time working in customer experience and customer service operations in Telstra in Australia and, uh, and then um, really started to focus heavily in customer experience probably about 12 years ago as the head of customer experience at T-Mobile in England and then moving more into sort of strategic and enterprise-wide roles in Rogers. Um, in Canada and then in Comcast in the U.S. All right, listeners, did you hear that globetrotting there? Australia to England to Canada to the U.S. And along the way, working in customer experience. Um, Trey's, I would love to hear from you maybe a little bit about the time at Rogers because that was when Adele and I first got to know you and work with you. What were sort of the key elements for you to make the case to Rogers that customer experience was something worth focusing on and worth paying attention to? Sure. Uh, when I first started there, um, it was, you know, I think there was sort of a, an eye-opening moment for the organization that for them to actually be competitive and to move and improve, you know, within the marketplace, that customer experience had to be an important area of focus. And the way in which uh, we got, you know, the buy-in from the organization was to truly demonstrate to them, you know, firstly, the customer pain points, and then how did those pain points translate into financial impacts to the organization, but then also when we were able to demonstrate significant improvement, what were the benefits to the organization, such as, you know, were we able to reduce churn, were we able to save the organization money, but ultimately, you know, how could we actually get better PR for the organization, and then ultimately showing those proof points to the organization over time that sort of said build a groundswell that actually got a huge amount of investment and focus in the organization and the realization that this is a really important area for the organization to work on. So what were some of the big projects that you were able to get done there? Probably the biggest one um, was one called the Hot House. And what I loved about that particular project was from inception and the decision to sort of say, let's, let's do this work to bring it to fruition. We were able to do that in, in 16 weeks. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty fast-paced, um, you know, environment at the time. And what we did was we identified 43 separate capabilities that we felt would really move the needle in the customer experience space. And we actually sectioned off a part of um, North Toronto and infused all of those 43 capabilities mm. that we believed that would make a difference. And then really just watched and very quickly made decisions. Generally, we would test something for no longer than four weeks and then make the call to say, hey, you know, this didn't make a difference. Let's dump it and not use it. Hmm. Hey, this one's actually really moved the needle. Let's actually go far and wide and, and not just operate in North Toronto, but let's scale it across the organization. And I think, you know, realizing that it's okay to fail um, and long as you fail fast, and then move on to the next one, I feel that we were able to actually cover a lot of different ground um, as opposed to get sort of a paralysis through analysing and how can we make it better, but just making decisions like, hey, to, to dump something and move on to the next one. 
I love the idea of trying lots of different things. Can you give examples of some of the things you tried that succeeded and some that didn't? Sure. I think, you know, one of the most successful um, things that we tried was the Moves Concierge. Generally in telecom, customers moving is quite a sort of a difficult pain point. Quite often they're moving between different technologies, but yet they're an existing customer. And we always make assumptions that they understand and know how things work. Also, when customers are moving, it's actually a really stressful time in their lives that's driven that move. Then that can be a positive thing or quite often it can be a negative thing that's happened that's driven that move. So with the Moves Concierge, what we did was we assigned an employee to that customer and really held their hand across the course of the experience. And what we found by doing that, um, we were able to sort of then truly understand when was the right moment for us to, to raise certain points. So just in the end, giving them the right information at the right time so that it was actually contextual and important to them. And then also the realisation that by building that trust through that relationship, we were able to actually then sell and increase the value um, you know, with mm. the customer over the course of that relationship as well. Um, in terms of things that, you know, probably didn't go as well or, you know, for example, not even so much that it didn't go well, but it didn't sort of prove out in terms of, um, you know, the experience or the timing. Um, and I'm struggling. I'm trying to think of one that didn't. I'm sure there was actually many. Um, not as memorable, right? It <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, that, I mean, sometimes I think when it, when it does fail, it is memorable. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, I think, to be honest, it was more around the softer side of things. So, you know, we trained in to our employees sort of how they sort of handled calls and how they served customers. And I think at the time we were probably too rigid in our expectations mm. and without actually just trusting and believing that these employees knew how to, to really sort of cope and deal and also make the right adjustments on the call. So interestingly, I think when we actually took our hands off, and allowed them to actually make the decisions and empower them to decide what's the best way to handle the call, we ended up getting better MPS results than opposed to us putting really heavy scripts around the way in which they operated. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I love that, you know, sort of comparison of loose versus strict and let's see how it shows up for customers, right? Um, and, and you have the evidence there to say, you know, we need to back off a little bit. We're getting customers want to f- hear someone actually speaking real sentences rather than reading from a script. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, customers are really aware of that. And I, and yeah, I understand yeah. that in the course of a call, sometimes there's got to be some level of scripting just because of legalities. But the more in which you can actually allow the employees to be human and to empower them to make the right decision. And also just to have a thermometer on what's the emotional state of the customer, what, you know, is the experience they're going through, and then actually responding appropriately, that's crucial in in, um, making sure you're actually having a memorable experience with a customer. Yeah, that's a great point. It goes along nicely with a call that you just did, Sam, for the Customer Experience Council and engaging your front line. Yeah. So, so, you know, for anyone interested, that's the kind of thing that we're doing. We're having, you know, folks like Sam and and Trace talk about their experiences and and best practices. Just on on that point, I think that, you know, one of the other sort of crucial successes, and and I look back on the hothouse and I ask why was it successful, it was because we engaged the front line in every step of the journey. And whenever we sort of came up with a capability, we got their feedback, we solicited their feedback on um, the capabilities that we built. So really actually along the way, constantly getting them engaged, constantly getting their feedback and iterating, you know, really got great buy-in from them. And in the end, they really 
felt that, that what they built was theirs and then, then they had a level of ownership and wanted to see that level of success. But um, ultimately, you know, realising that they truly are the experts and that they talk to these customers day in and day out. And it's so imperative to tap into that knowledge because it really does um, give you, you know, really good insight and view on, on how to do things differently and in an improved way. Yeah, I love that. I, I think that's so important. One, that they do have all of that knowledge, right? They're sort of you know, for lack of a, not official, but they're sort of ethnographers and with the customers, they're just there hearing from them constantly and hearing the problems they have, hearing how they express pain points. They have all that knowledge, but also to your point, Trace, and I, I think it's so important. It's a subtle thing. I don't, I want to underline it, what you, the point you made, which is if they're involved, it gives them a level of ownership and accountability for the success of the initiative based off of whatever feedback they provided to you and what you come up with, rather than if it was imposed upon them without their involvement, right? Suddenly they feel like, I created this, I want it to be successful too, and it includes my feedback. So to some extent, my success is tied to this. If it's not successful, then partly it's my fault because I was the one who suggested some of these ideas or gave them the feedback. It truly is a beautiful thing when you see a group of people all pushing in the same direction and wanting to see success. And for me, I think that's half the battle. Yeah. So I I just want to hop back a moment because you mentioned that there were 43 separate initiatives that you were infusing into the hothouse, into that one area. Where did those 43 come from? So there are a mixture of different things. I think firstly, it was we we did a heavy amount of research to understand where were the opportunities to really delight a customer and where were the things that really created pain. And for example, it was very obvious through the research that, you know, when a customer activates their service, you know, through a professional installation, that is a key moment of truth. And it's important that you absolutely get that right. Um, Also, it was through, you know, conversations um, with our employees to understand, you know, where were the things that we wanted to get better at or where did they think that there was opportunities to make a difference. And then also just soliciting from different parts of the business. Quite often, you know, I find that, you know, a way in which you can get a real groundswell for a project that you're working on is to look for things that are actually already happening in the organization and embrace them as part of the work that you're doing. So for me, it was about looking at things that might have been going on in IT or things that might have been going on in product space. And then, you know, while they were sort of working along, you know, sweeping in and bringing in the work that they were doing and and actually utilizing those for capabilities for the project that we were building. Oh, that's fascinating. The idea of aggregating all the things that were already happening and and linking them to the customer experience agenda. It just makes a better story um, (laughs) for me and and makes it more comprehensive. And then once again, you're, you're, and as opposed to just a customer experience in, in a headquarters environment, along with a frontline team, you're embracing people that are not in traditional customer experience roles. So people that work in IT, people that work in product, people that work in marketing. And I think that the more that you can actually get people involved that maybe don't have that background and get them to actually work towards the success that you're looking for, ultimately, you know, puts you in a better position to get the successful outcome. Yeah, that's great. And then one other question about the 43, you sort of were suggesting earlier in how you talked about uh, trying them and, you know, failing fast and discarding the ones that didn't work and, and scaling the ones that did. I'm wondering, was there any sort of process for prioritizing which of those 43 you implemented or tried first? In the end, it was, you know, it always, I think, you know, when you're looking internally in the organization, it's very much those key metrics. 
So firstly, what is going to drive an improvement in the customer experience measured by MPS or customer satisfaction? What can you do that doesn't have a high level of complexity? What can you do that doesn't cost a lot of money um, or have a, a massive drain on the business? And it was interesting, you know, one of the sort of key things, that, and this is just to do with the level of pressure that was going on in the organization at the time around the IT resources, was, you know, the realization that if we wanted to make, you know, fundamental systems changes, that that would actually take a very long time, you know, mm. up to nine months. And because we wanted to sort of get to market within that 16 weeks, it was a, a key decision that we made that we would actually not touch technology at all. Sometimes you've got to make those sacrifices, but I think that ultimately the lesson from there was, wow, you could actually make a significant improvement in the experience without having to touch the underlying sort of technology um, and that you can do it through process and policy changes, you can do it through training and you can do it through empowering your front line. Yeah, that's great. And I think that taking that limitation and turning it into a constraint that then guided what work you would do and could do and where you would focus rather than throwing up your hands and saying, well, without IT resources, what's really possible and, and not using it as an excuse for not moving forward, I think is a Great lesson for other uh, CX professionals who are struggling a bit with resources and budget and time and attention from colleagues in different parts of the business. For me, I think the vision that I have in my mind around that particular experience is it's like the swan. You actually can have something that's very elegant that sits on top um, that people view and admire, but underneath you're working really hard and you're moving your feet really fast to keep that movement. And I think that's the sort of the vision that I have around the hothouse is is really at times we were the swan and, and quite often it was the sticky tape and string that was going on <laughs> behind the scenes, but actually to the customer, it appeared like a perfect experience. How long was that hothouse experiment running for while, while you were at Rogers? Uh, so ultimately it was 16 um, weeks to get to launch and then from there, uh, we started to sort of identify those sort of key elements that we wanted to scale. And it's interesting, um, I was at Rogers for three years, and even today I know that the Moves Concierge is fully rolled out nationally mm. across the organization. It's still in place today. So I think that that's always a good sign of, you know, in terms of legacy and looking back on where things have been successful. Um, you know, and customer experience is still an important and, and key part of that organization. Um, and I think that not even just the sort of the capabilities that we spoke about, such as the Moves Concierge, but the ways in which people work you know, and, I, and I take comfort in the fact that I know that Rogers you know does move at pace does move to market quickly um, and, and and having that realization that you need to just sort of go and launch and learn from that and then keep moving and I believe that that behavior and that practice still exists today in that organization yeah that's great I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit here. I love that example, the hothouse. We've, you know, I think we, colleagues of ours wrote a case study about it a few years ago. It's, what's fascinating to me about it is sort of the, we're going to show you, we're going to prove it, right? We'll, we'll have this really nice, elegant experiment where we can see what does improve the experience. And if, and, and I think you guys were rigorous about this, if it has business value, right? If it reduces call center costs or truck rolls, or if it increases loyalty or upsell. So it's this great initiative, an idea I don't think I'm aware of any other examples of it that, that have been used anywhere else. And so I'm wondering from, from your perspective, why don't you think it was you know, your great idea, for the Rogers great idea, taken and replicated uh, at more companies? What do you think prevents them from, from trying something similar? Probably many different things. 
timing in an organization can sometimes make a big difference. You might sort of have the right approach, but you may not have the leadership support. You may not have um, actually you know, built the groundswell that's needed or had the level of engagement that's needed from the front line to actually get the buy-in. Um, so for me, it's about sort of looking at all of those different tenants and making sure that you tick those boxes. You know, really, I think if you can tick boxes such as having the right leadership support at the right levels, if you've really truly engaged the people that are going to be making the difference and, and you've got them brought in and making them feel accountable and making them feel like they're a part of what's being built and, and having that level of investment, um, you know, making sure you've also got the budget in place. And then also the runway. Uh, you know, I think quite often in organisations, um, we sort of try something and then we sort of give up and we move to the next and we move to the next. But without actually, you know, sandboxing and saying, I need this amount of time and I need you to give me that space to be able to prove this out. And then also, you know, just the competing priorities. You know, I think one of the interesting things, and I saw this even in the hothouse, was, you know, we'd sort of probably got, you know, 75% along the way. And then we started to face some serious budget constraints in the organization. And when you see that, what happens is you have a group of people that are working really well together, but then actually they're starting to compete for money. They're starting to compete for resources and that creates conflict. So it's about how do you, you know, still get them to work together, but work methodically through the conflicts that they're facing. Um, because that generally I find is, is the biggest point of failure is um, when people, you know, end up in conflict because they're fighting over resources or money and they end up retreating back into their specific sort of areas of focus or division and fight for their myopic sort of point of view as opposed to what's best for the organization and what's best for the customer. That's great speculation. Thank you. I think those all sounded like very uh, reasonable uh, suggestions about why this doesn't happen anymore. And I, and I think to your point, it, even if it is tried, it's risky. It's, it's delicate, right? That, it, you know, something like a budget constraint or another priority coming in, which is almost inevitable uh, inside mm. a large organization can derail it or can uh, minimize its impact. So that's a, it's a great point. Thing on that one, it's about how do you, when you actually face that constraint or when you face uh, that conflict, it's about how can you embrace it and then actually use it to your advantage. Um, and I think that that's always, you know, the sort of the eye that I have is when I face those things as opposed to it being a barrier for me, how can I use that to actually advance my position um, in terms of where I'm headed? I'm curious, were there any any trade-offs? So in, in taking on the Hothouse project, were there other things that you weren't able to do because you were focused on it? Is there some sort of downside to being so focused on one project? Um, I don't think in that particular case that was the, the experience because it wasn't as if we were only caring about one specific metric such as, um, you know, customer experience and not having regard for revenue or regard for churn. So ultimately, I think because we had a good balance across those different metrics and we also had an interest in enough metrics that sort of tickled the fancy of different parts of the organization. So whether that was sales, having to hit their numbers, whether that was customer experience, having to focus on what was important to them. I think, you know, that's it's about getting the balance of interest and, and doing that through the metrics that you have. I'm sure ultimately as an organization, there was something that fell off the radar because we had that level of focus, but I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, at times, yes, even in customer experience, we know it's the right thing to do uh, for the customer. It's the right thing to do for the organization. But, you know, you might have to really compete and compete hard to get that level of focus. But to me, that's business. And it's really about being good storytellers 
you know, really getting the right level of empathy in the organization to get people to back what it is that you're trying to do and get the right support to execute accordingly. Yeah, no, that makes sense. You're, you're sort of expressing too that the conflict or the challenges that arise are your opportunity because things are suddenly disrupted and moving and chaotic. And so it does seem like that, that you're right to look for those moments of disruption because that is a time at when people are maybe a little bit more open to change because it's, it feels like change is more, more necessary, more required, or more appropriate in that setting. So I think it's a great insight to, uh, to focus our listeners on. And I think that's a fantastic point. And I think maybe we should end it right there. So Trace, really appreciate you joining Adele and me on CXCast and, and sharing your thoughts. This is why we wanted to have you on. You're very thoughtful about all the things that you've done and you've, you've accomplished so many customer experience achievements in your career. So we really appreciate you sharing all of that and your knowledge with the listeners. So thank you for joining us. Honestly, my pleasure. Great. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us too. And uh, we've got some links to relevant articles and reports in the show notes, including the case study on the Rogers Hothouse that, that Trey's talked about. So thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week on CXCast. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of CXCast. And remember, Your customer's perception is your customer experience reality.